And today's sponsor is Reconciled. Reconciled invoices your clients, pays your bills, and delivers clear and accurate financial reports every month automatically. Ready to streamline your financials and prepare your business for the next big step? Visit Reconciled.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado Magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado Magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with Sam Rosati. He is a powerhouse in the ETA world. He's the founder of Pursuant Capital and just does a lot of stuff. If you're not familiar out there with him, you're not on Twitter, you're not in the SMB Twitter world. Thank you for being on the show today. I've been looking forward to this. I've interviewed a lot of people, but sometimes you really look forward to getting somebody on the camera and talking to them and learning from them. And you're one of those guys, man. Thank you for being here today. You got it, Ron. No pressure, right? No pressure. No, you just, you've been there, you've done it. A lot of the guys I get to interview are lawyers and advisors, and but they're not out there. They don't have a hold code. They're not out there buying 10, 15, 20 companies and hunting down operators and all this stuff. They understand the challenges from a, a lot of times from an academic level, but like how many operators have you hired, right? I mean, how many have you fired? Because that, that's one of the reasons I went into the space I'm in right now with the blogs and web content sites and stuff, because they're usually three or four person companies, right? I don't have to have a great CEO and managing the team of 10, 15 people. If something goes wrong, I need a new SEO guy or I need a new writer. It's pretty, pretty laid back. Tell me about you. How did you get into this space? I guess you're both an attorney and an advisor and just like you're really into this. So tell me kind of how did you get in here? Man, it's too long of a story. It'll take up the whole podcast. Then we'll have to shut it down. <laughs> Give right. us the brief view. Give us the 50,000 foot view. It's funny as I usually joke around and say, hey, you were born and then you ended up on a show about mergers and acquisition. Can you fill out the gap in between? <laughs> All right, let's see. I'll go back to as far back in the origin story as maybe people care to hear. So before I got into ETA, I was a lawyer. I was a lawyer doing uh, M&A for entrepreneurs, mostly helping entrepreneurs sell their businesses. And <clears throat> I can kind of go back oh, 10 years before that to say it was up until I became a lawyer at a big, fancy, big law, white collar law firm that I had a plan. I was kind of always that guy, right? I studied fairly hard and it was when I found myself at a law firm working for some partners that I realized, holy crap, I do not want to do this. <laughs> and I had a couple jobs before that. I sold some golf stuff at a retailer over summers and holidays and worked, did a couple internships. And I always noticed that I felt like I was a bad employee. 
And I didn't know why I kind of buried that thought. I said, just suck it up, keep going on the corporate hamster wheel. And so when I was a lawyer a few years in, I realized, holy cow, maybe it's not those jobs. Maybe it's me. (laughs) And that was a tough one to deal with. I can tell you, I kind of was in a funk, whatever you want to call that, a depression or whatever. And uh, I was in my late 20s and I had to figure out, holy heck, what the heck am I going to do now? I had worked my whole life to become a corporate lawyer, helping other people do their deals. And then I got there and I was, I kept finding myself wanting to read like the Sims and the financial model and the businessy side and had no interest in the legal documents. That's not a great sign for a lawyer. So I got really lucky. As soon as I started looking for what another route could be, I stumbled on a podcast. Mm-hmm. I don't know which one it was. I'm going to guess that it was Brent Bishore. Five years ago, 10 years ago, not 10, five, six, seven years ago, he was kind of the man, the only game in town. And I must have just gotten lucky, stumbled on one of his pods, learned about search funds, did what most people do, go down the rabbit hole, read the HBR guide and buy them build. And then I realized, holy cow, this might actually work because the only thing I know how to do in this world is help people buy and sell companies. And that's what this is all about. So Long story short, that's the origin story. I recruited my brother to join me, who was younger, was more of an operator, and I was more of a deal guy. And this foray into SMBs, a hold co, helping people buy and sell small companies, it all came from that initial search we did to buy a business. We ended up buying two. We ended up running them both. On a divide and conquer basis, we ended up selling them both. And that is sort of how I am where I am today. Was it a good sale? Did you sell them for a profit? Yeah, we sold them both for a profit. Anybody who thinks that we made a home run killing on them and I don't have to work doesn't realize what the true outcome was and doesn't realize I have three kids. (laughs) It's funny as I was working on a when I was doing real estate, I had a real estate investment firm. I was asked a bunch, and I actually owned a piece of the local real estate investors association. I got asked by a bunch of people, you got to write a book, you got to write a book. So I was like, finally caved in and I started it. I never finished it, but I might fire it back up when I get a little more experience on this and complete it and combine real estate and this together. I already have the title and everything. The book cover's already made. Probably got 150 pages into it already. And it's called Get Rich Quick My Ass. <laughs> All these things that are like real estate, even this, like it takes time. There's lessons to learn. There, you've got to, it's not overnight. A lot of people go, I'm going to flip businesses, make a million dollars a pop. Like, oh, cool. Call me when you All get right. that chance. So, anyway, let's go back to. So now you're like, you still have a hold co. You, you bought and sold those, but you've since then you've bought more. What does your current hold co look like? What is your investment thesis or whatever the word they would use? Like, what are you buying and holding and keeping? Yeah, it's funny because it's, not tax season, but I'm trying to play catch up on my K-1s and get my <laughs> 22 tax returns submitted. So I actually have a chart that shows under the holdings, what are all yeah. of the holdings? And I won't bore you, but long story short, it's about two dozen entities, two dozen businesses almost. Mm-hmm. And they are all either small businesses, what we would all think of as you know, a small or medium-sized business, mm-hmm. or they are the real estate, in most cases, that one of those small businesses operates from and they don't really have a rhyme or a reason they're geographically spread out 
although there is a concentration in Florida, just because that's where I'm at. And that's mm-hmm. that was the way I started. There are various sizes like across the board from businesses that are only making a few hundred thousand dollars a year of profit to some real estate that doesn't make any profit to a few businesses in particular that have gotten fairly big and I'd call them medium size. And as far as industry goes, I'd say the only thing that's in common is it's sweaty businesses, old school, blue collar, mostly service businesses. Okay. And do they actually have any cross sell up sell synergies across them or are they just pretty diverse? Pretty diverse. I'd say none of them cross sell on purpose. Those benefits are over exaggerated. Let's say everybody has eyes of grandeur when they first get into this. Like I bought the first thing I did is I went out and bought myself. I bought a pest control company because I had a couple relatives whose boss was retiring, and they like my cousins, and they're like, "Hey, really should buy this." And I was like, "Okay, I'm getting in that game. I'll take a look." I ended up buying just like the customer list and the equipment because it was not following regulation stuff. Way, way too small. That's why I started learning, like interviewing people and learning is like I did this way wrong. I looked at it. It's like, okay, next time I'm going to buy a cleaning company because who finds more bugs than the cleaning lady? Like I had this whole plan and then next thing you know, I'm not doing it right. You build these uh, eyes of grandeur, but you take the deals that you pretty much find. And like, if they're great deals, you probably move forward with them and we can search out that other stuff too. But eventually I'll have some synergy around there, but that's, it didn't turn out exactly the way that I intended on it either. I didn't like own websites and other stuff at the beginning. I was like, it was like, find stuff that builds this one up. Never works out the way you think. And I think what's for sure true is it's harder than it looks on Twitter. Now, how many of those do you have to say? Everybody's like, I held networking meetings and stuff where I meet people like yourself and other people. And some of them we pull out and be on the show. And a lot of it's just to help each other out. Twice a month we meet and just have a chat. And where are you stuck? One of the ways they make money is if somebody's stuck, I refer somebody and I have referral agreements with a lot of people that have been on the show. So when I tell the guys too, it's like, look, if you're stuck and you have the money to get unstuck, I probably know a guy, right? So I've interviewed 160 people in this space. So I probably know somebody can get you moving to the next step. But inside of that, how many of these things do you operate? You, you have to, like, you can't operate all those, but I'm sure you have to step in and operate them on from time to time. So what does operations of uh, two dozen companies look like? Yeah, it's a great question because it's at the core of the way I've built it. And the way I've built my Polco is just a reflection of the life I want to live. A thousand other ways to do it. Probably 999 of those are better. The experience I had with the first two businesses we bought, and I don't think we need to relive the story because I've done a bunch of other podcasts to talk about them. It was a roll-off dumpster business, a rental mm-hmm. a dumpster oh, yeah. business. And the other one was a light manufacturer. I'd call it a fabricator, a building component that goes in mostly residential homes. And we, my brother and I had to be involved in both of those. And obviously he's a better entrepreneur than me, a better operator than me. That was my first foray into running a small business, having to manage people and a P&L and all of the thousand things on an SMB owner's checklist. I will tell you, I struggled with it and operations. I think I figured out the playbook if there is one Mm -hmm. and what to do and how to do it, but I don't think I like it. And so I built my entire holding company around the idea that in order for the day-to-day operations of any of these businesses to stay steady and in an ideal world to grow and improve, I can't be needed in the day-to-day so that I can be 
and call it like master of special projects. <laughs> and whether that's accounting, finance, M&A, some sort of fire drill that comes up, whatever it is that is not necessary to the day-to-day, that's where I can get involved. But mm-hmm. the business doesn't need me to continue yeah. on. I like that. I consider myself, I think there are only probably two, maybe 3% of the planet are truly good at problem solving. And I consider myself one of those guys, even all the way back when I came out of the military and went to work for Lockheed Martin, they recognized it pretty quick. And I was the guy they brought in for, they were building something and they broke it. <laughs> I got that project to go in and like, okay, this thing's breaking on a regular basis. I was a test engineer for them, for them anyway, but I've always had that, like look at something, analyze it and solve problems. And they get real bored once all the problems are solved. So I like your approach. Like if you do the day-to-day stuff, if something needs to be fixed or figured out, I'll take a look at that. That's what I'm really good at. So yeah. I love that approach. Pattern recognition has helped too. You do this once and twice, three or four times, everything seems new and incredibly painful. Well, you start doing this a few more times and the same issues just repeat and that becomes a lot less stressful, a lot easier to diagnose. Yeah. I mean, the reason I got out of the computer world is because I always joke around. It's like, if there's a problem with the computer. It's either the idiot behind the keyboard that actually wrote it, right? The software or the idiot sitting on this side of the keyboard, banging on keys. It's rarely the software itself and it's rarely the computer components themselves. So it kind of got boring and mundane, but in this space on businesses and stuff, human psychology comes into play. So a lot of times it's on this side of the keyboard. A lot of times it's operator error and it's not because they don't know any better. It's just they, their own habits and behaviors and stuff kick in. So you're managing multiple entities, dozens, if not, I don't know how many employees total across all those, probably over a hundred between, if you got that many entities, probably over a hundred, easily over a hundred. So do you have to do with any of the day-to-day dynamics of that or do they take care of all that stuff? I would say that was one of the more painful parts of operating was managing people. And I knew there's this old saying that the deal business is the people business. And and I'm okay with that. I love the art of the deal. I love human psychology in the M&A perspective Mm -hmm. when you're doing a deal, when you're sort of having that first call with an owner all the way through closing. The thing I don't enjoy as much is managing the day-to-day of teams, of of staff that are in small businesses. So I don't get involved in that almost ever. And that's nice. I have a buddy who just bought into a, him and another guy bought a construction company. And he was like talking about these guys that are out in the yard screaming and yelling and ready to fist fight each other. And I was like, that's that industry. That is not uncommon. That is a very, you know, I know a bunch of people in the construction business. And that's one of the reasons I wouldn't be that interested in it is it's just a different culture. That's who you're hiring. That's their way of handling. They have no EQ, right? They're, and I always, my joke is, uh, EQ is greater than IQ every single time. And emotional intelligence is more and more, more important to me than your actual IQ. Your ability to handle stressful situations and how you behave around other people is more important. So I'm looking, I'm in the same boat as yours. If I have to manage the individual day-to-day behavior of the people, I'm socially awkward anyway. I'd rather have an operator or somebody can get in there. I have to train all my VAs and all the people on my business. It's like, look, I never mean to offend you. I'm really straightforward and direct. I'm a little socially awkward. I may be slightly on the spectrum. I've been accused of it more than once. I don't, here's a good one. I've been partners with somebody now on one of the websites and the content sites where probably with the other roll-ups and stuff I worked with her two years. I never knew she had a family. Never asked a personal question. We've been working side by side, 50% owners on some of these projects. 
didn't know a single thing about her. I had to have a call the other day and go, hey, my wife just asked me a question about you. I don't know. And then I realized she's giving me a hard time. I realized I don't know anything about you. It was like, just things you randomly brought up, I knew, but I never asked. My wife's like, you're socially awkward. Like, yeah, I know. Because <laughs> I had to tell you right off the bat, I probably shouldn't be the head of HR, right? I should not probably, if I've got 50 employees, maybe not be the guy that interacts with them on day to day and deals with their personal issues and growth issues. I need to be like the guy like I could try to stay in now, like you stay in solving problems and leading something from the top, as opposed to in the day-to-day operations of who's yeah. where, why they're there. So let me just say something wrong. I, in the SMB ETA, the hard thing is you, your success or non-success in the search phase is defined by your ability to close on a business. So managing people is not a big part of that. Maybe managing your seller and the broker and your advisor, Mm -hmm. but it's not, it's a deal. It's transactional. The problem is that when you become an operator, then you switch gears overnight. You go from being the searcher to the CEO owner. Managing people is everything. And so I go so far as to say, the skills you may or may not have in managing people are far more important to searchers than any book has written about because they all write about the search phase and not the key part, the operating phase. So that's where I stand. I like, I get it. And I know my own limitations. So I either have to have something that's can be ran by a very small team where it's so big. The operator's already there. I have an operator already identified and a vice president that can step up to be the operator if my operator leaves or I'm not interested because I don't, could I do it for six months? Yeah. You could put on any persona or facade or doing like a fake personality for six or eight months. But do I want to do that past that? No, I could create a daily checklist on myself and say, Hey, check on people, do this, ask these questions. You can build a routine. Anybody that's socially awkward and trying to be out there as an entrepreneur in the world, we build these routines of how to behave like other people. Right. I know. <laughs> I'm a closet introvert over here. I totally get it. So you have a checklist like, hey, when I see somebody, I probably ought to ask them this, this, and this. It's not that I don't care or don't know. It's just I'm extremely logical. So if it doesn't turn the widgets of the business, then like my wife said, does she have kids? My other business partner, like, I don't know. It never made a difference to the bottom line of our company. So the takeaway, though, is that when somebody goes out there to buy a business and they're looking for the formula, right? They're looking for somebody to tell them, is this business good enough? Is this the one? There is no answer to that. The answer is what's right for you based on your skills and whatever the opposite of a skill is. How do you identify a great operator? Because I've actually had one or two really good opportunities and passed them on to people that made some money. But because I'm like, I'm not the operator for this, but I know the guy. How do you identify a great operator if you wanted to buy it yourself and do it? Is it higher fast and fire faster or higher slow and fire faster? I mean, what's your method of figuring out who's the right guy to, to run it? Or do you keep the seller in the loop for a little while? Or what's your game plan for making sure you have the right operator? Sure. So I've done it almost every way imaginable. I have partnered with sellers and they continue to operate. I've operated myself. I've had my brother operate. I have bought a business where the operator was retiring and replaced them with somebody unfamiliar with the business. In almost every way possible, I've tried it. And I can tell you the more I do this, the more I actually lose conviction and my ability to figure out who the right operator is and how successful they're going to be. Now, there are traits that seem to be very consistent among the great operators of Mm -hmm. the businesses I have some insight into. And yet those operators have vastly different backgrounds. 
So I don't know if I have a playbook yet. And this is probably like top of the list of things to get better at if I'm going to do more of this down the road. It's funny, as I interviewed, like I said, I've interviewed over 160 people by this. I worked with one of my friends who's an investor. He bought a tow truck company and put an operator in it, and the operator was horrible. So we interviewed about probably the next 10 interviews I did. I was like, how do you choose an operator? I use this process to learn for myself. So everybody I brought on, they all said the same thing you did. It's an acquired skill. I don't know if I've ever got it right. You put somebody in, if they don't work, you figure out how to replace them, right? And uh, that's the answer I've got from everybody. So I was hoping you had a magic formula, man. (laughs) (laughs) The answer is there is no magic formula. You got to pick the best person you can find, give them a shot at, and then be willing to swap them out, I think, if they're not working, right? I'll give you the 10 steps to identifying a great operator for Twitter that you can post. <laughs> we'll look forward to that Twitter thread, man. I do follow I can actually Twitter up on one of my other monitors right now just to just kind of give myself reminders of things to ask you. If you don't post something in a little bit, I start looking. I actually go to your page. There's a checklist of about four or five people. I go like see if I missed one of your posts. You're one of them. I mean, you put out some cool stuff. Let's move forward on this. So we're out there. We're looking at deals. You do a lot of stuff in the search fund and search fund boot camps and stuff like that. We've had some search funders on here, but tell us how you interact with them. I kind of think you're, you're doing this, you're helping them because it brings you operators, right? It's a way to get in front of people who want to do this, that have deals. But is that me just guessing? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, look, so the experience of searching mm-hmm. from scratch, like everybody has to do their first mm-hmm. search, acquired, operated, sold. So I had that full life cycle experience mm-hmm. and then sort of said to myself, okay, I'm never going to operate again myself. Mm-hmm. So let's go find businesses to buy mm-hmm. where I have a partner who's running it. And then I did a few of those. And somewhere down the road there, and this was about two, two and a half years ago, I started having people just ask friends, random folks, Hey, what do you do? And can you tell me how to do it? And so I ended up spending more time on that than I should. So I said, like anybody, I've got to figure out a way either not to do any more of that to helping people where it takes a lot of my time, or I've got to find a way to do it at scale, some way that scales. So I had some folks come over to my office and I just said, Hey, look, we'll take a day and I'll run you through everything I do. And when I did that, I realized, man, this is one fun two, I think it's helpful. I got really good feedback and three, it was frankly easy because searching and doing a deal and sort of operational tips and tricks. That's all I did for the last, however many years, two years ago, almost to the day now. I opened it up. I said, anybody who wants to come, I'm going to set three days. I think it was four days Mm -hmm. at the time aside in my office. You got to pay me something, cover my costs. And I'm going to put together a whole content, a whole package of content on what we do. And I brought in my deal team. I said, hey, the vendors we use, SBA lender, quality of earnings, insurance, law firm, tax, I brought them in. I said, hey, come if you can. Give me an hour of your time. Mm-hmm. Tell these. And it ended up being eight people in the room. Tell them what we do and how we do it. Let's have fun. Yeah. That was the first boot camp. I think we called it a boot camp at the time. Yeah. But it was just a total riff. And it was fun. Mm-hmm. I think people got a lot of value out of it because the feedback was awesome. And sort of how the way things work, I guess. I'm not a startup guy, but I guess that was a startup. Is That was, I think, five or six or seven live boot camps ago and now we do it pretty formally so what's the formal one look like how many people end up showing up do you guys still do like the 
panel thing where you have experts come in and talk about different subjects and stuff. It just looks like a fancier, cleaner version of what we started with. Now it's at a, a nice business club mm -hmm. at my office. It's three days instead of four, so more people can put that amount of time aside. Day one is really all about understanding your own criteria, being very clear about it. And then it's all about how to find a deal. Mm -hmm. yeah. Search tips, tricks, tactics, and we have some speakers. And then day two is all about once you have a deal, how do you get it under LOI? How do you do diligence? What is it like to quarterback a deal, an SMB, M&A deal? So we bring in every one of our deal team folks. They give a pitch on how to do what you're supposed to do as a searcher. And then day three is the fun day. We bring in a bunch of searcher CEOs who have been through bootcamp, who are now owners, and they talk about everything, backgrounds, where they found it, how they bought it, who the money is, how they run it. And it's awesome. And today's sponsor is Reconciled. Are you an entrepreneur or business owner thinking about your exit strategy? Or maybe you've just landed a business through acquisition and the books just aren't the way you need them to be. Let me tell you about Reconciled, your dedicated partner for industry-leading virtual bookkeeping and accounting services. Reconciled pairs you with skilled professionals who empower you to grow your business and prepare for success, whether that's your exit or taking that new acquisition to top performance. Imagine having high-level financial management without expanding your team. From bookkeeping to CFO services, services, tax advisory, and even fully outsourced accounting, Reconciled has got you covered. They help you make the best business decisions, keeping your end goal in mind. And the best part? Reconciled understands acquisitions. If they have acquired three accounting firms in the past three years, and their founder, Michael Lee, mentors others in searching for acquisition, raising capital, or trying to aggressively scale. Reconcile invoices your clients, pays your bills, and delivers clear and accurate financial reports every month automatically. Ready to streamline your financials and prepare your business for the next big step? Visit Reconcile.com today and let them get your books in order. Reconciled, making bookkeeping a breeze. That's Reconcile.com. So I, I have found that uh, I think it's around 70-30. I think 70% of the people are still are happy after the acquisition. And 30% 30, 30 of the people who have acquired something are like, what the hell I get myself into? You have any of those go through the course and they buy a business and they're like, oh, man, this is more work than my old job. Why am I doing this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know if there is a – every business owner is surprised by how much work it is <laughs> and how mentally taxing it is. I think the only difference is, are you making it, are you growing or not? And that dictates right. the variation of outcomes. Yeah. The ones I'm thinking that are probably the 30% that aren't happy basically are, they didn't realize that the revenue would dip so much at the beginning. All these things, you, all these grandiose ideas you have about changing the business cost money. And that you know, like they just seen, okay, this company is making a half million dollars a year. I only made 150,000 in my best year in the job. I get to make 500,000 next year. They, they come in and when they go, I'm going to buy this thing. I'm going to change the HR system and I'm going to change the, the invoice and the accounting system. And then I got to retrain all my people on that. And the next thing I know, they didn't make that much the next year. And they're like, two or three years down the road, they're back where they need to be. But that integration and that changeover is stressful. And it's one of those... I was interviewing a guy yesterday. He makes people plan all this. Like, okay, now you're going to buy this. What are you going to change? <laughs> all right, we're looking at your cash flow analysis. You realize those changes cost money. How much are you setting aside for that? Now that's at the end of the first year, here's all the money you have left. Is it worth doing this job? for Because the, the first year and the first 18 months and the first two years, this is what it's going to look like. Would you buy this company if all you get to take home this year is 60000 instead of 180000 And then he just says, now the benefit is four, three years from now, two and a half years from now, 
You're going to have growth. You're going to be at or beyond where they were if you're doing this right, as long as the, the market can change the economy. There's a probability better than startup <laughs> that you're going to be ahead. So can you ride the storm? It's not as luxurious as most people put it on to be, right? You got, not in the early days. Not in the early days. We got all these guys teaching us, you're going to buy a business and make a million dollars a year. It's like, okay, yeah, you could. Or you owe the bank $650,000 a year. Right. A debt service and like that business looked really good before the debt service and the, the owner is doing four jobs you only want to do once. You have to go hire three people at a hundred grand a piece. So uh, anyway. What is the process for the guys at the boot camp and stuff? Do they work with you a little bit? I mean, I know some of them you partner with, but is there a way for them to reach out to you after, like if they've acquired something? And I know you're like, it sounds like you're a problem solver like myself. If they get stuck in a sticky spot and you're not one of the investors, do you have any type of methods that people or resources for people to reach back and go, hey, bought this thing and now I've kind of lost on growth or now I'm kind of lost on, we got this big accounting problem or whatever. Do you keep resources around for them to deal with some of that? Yeah. So let's, two things. One, for searchers who are still looking for a business, then obviously I get pretty involved to the extent they want it. Mm. And it's not just me. Usually I'm helpful at issue spotting and saying, here are a couple ways you could deal with it, or Mm -hmm. here are a few people to call to help you deal with it. So a lot of that, a lot of how do you think about it from the investor's perspective? And how do you think about it considering the fact that you kind of know me? So a lot of that, when it comes to post-closing after they've bought a business, it just depends. Sometimes searchers like to say, hey, I don't really want anybody involved. I got into this to be independent. I want my investors to be passive and I'm completely fine with that. And so I just like to be very clear about what my involvement should be beforehand because it's just me too. I can't overcommit. I got kids Mm -hmm. too. And and just to be clear, I actually posted this on Twitter last night. Like the whole reason I do this is like, I wanted to be very transparent. One is fun, right? Mm -hmm. So this is fun. And frankly, it feels easy to me because this is what my life has been for the last 10 or 15 years. But First and foremost, it's to help people get in the seat and to get investment in small company purchases. So that's great. It gives me an opportunity to invest in deals. And then it gets obviously a chance for me to make some money when I do the boot camp. You mm-hmm. have to make money. Otherwise, not worth our time. We should go hang with our kids. But then generally to reinvest all that money back into doing more deals and to support more. So that is my entire flywheel for why I do this. One of your first purchases, I almost bought a business, the roll-off business. I almost bought, I looked at one of those when I first started. I was in the real estate space and we had such a deal flow that we didn't keep as many of our deals as we probably could have. We wholesaled a bunch of them. Like, so we cherry pick what we want that met our criteria and we sold the rest of them off to other investors. So I had a decent relationship with everybody. And one of the private lenders in town actually owned a roll-off company he was selling. So I sat down with him and he like he was friends enough enough to go, hey, probably really don't want to buy this from me. And I said, why? He, he told me the insight. He says, there's one big dump in town where all that stuff has to go. And they own their own roll-off business. So they've been systematically raising the prices on him dropping off his roll-offs to where it doesn't make sense anymore. They were just basically squeezing him out. He's like, I'm selling it off because I just don't want to compete with the number one. Like, I have to use them. At first, when he started, they were really friendly. Like you could store their his roll offs in their in their big dump facility, you know, at their landfill. And then at the end, it was like he barely was making any money because of their fees and everything. Yeah, 
Well, I've got my own version of stories that give me PTSD from the roll-off business. And <laughs> so our business was, a, I guess, a broker, right? And not a hauler. We didn't mm-hmm. own any trucks. We didn't own any dumpsters. We were just a lead gen. Okay. And so in that business, we had our own problems, which was, you know, we had a, anybody could open up a website and compete against you. There was zero moat. Mm-hmm. The other one was Google, like the primary way revenue and customers came in was through PPC campaigns on Google. Guess who raised their price and squeezed us? Everything is tough. Pick your poison. Yeah, everything has, all businesses have that type of stuff, but this was one of those ones. I asked him one of the horror stories of it. He's like, we found bodies in our dumpsters. They had to call the cops because there's somebody, if this was a slumlords of the all slumlords, somebody had somebody who an elderly couple had passed away in some form or shape in one of his rentals and he didn't want to do it. Instead of calling the morgue to come get him, his Hispanic cleaning crew just throw him in the roll-off, <laughs> roll them up in the sheets and put them in the roll-off. And the dump found it when they emptied the dump. Like It wasn't even him that found it. That lo- almost made the local news. I don't even know if I should have been sharing that. He kind of said that to me in, in trust. But yeah, they found drugs. They found all kinds of stuff in, in those things. I got a good one for you. People don't talk about this enough. The ones that got away. We looked at early on before we bought anything, we looked at a franchisor. So the the company that franchised and the franchises that they would franchise were hoarder cleanup. It was a service. They did cleanups of hoarder homes, mm-hmm. crime scene cleanups, master cleanups. And we looked at that and we're like, geez, this is awful anyway that was one that got away i think that one turned out pretty successfully i once acquired a i think it was like very small 900 1100 square foot house and it took 17 almost 18 dumpsters 40 yard dumpsters to empty it out it was so bad that when i sold it to the investor they had to cut all the sheetrock off because it had a cockroach problem so bad they were in the walls that that the walls were a foot or two deep in cockroaches when they removed the sheetrock out of the bottom they couldn't kill them like i own a pest control company we couldn't kill them we just cut the sheetrock off it could spray up in the walls and kill them because the house was so so infested so yeah we've seen some pretty bad ones and everybody's like oh this smells horrible and i'd walk through and go it smells like money to me because i'm gonna get this thing pretty cheap but uh, anyway so we're in the lineup of what we're going through. We've worked with such funders. You got a hold co. What areas out there? Is there anything you just don't touch? Like if somebody got a business idea or a business, not idea, but a business that they want to sell, are there any realms that you just don't play in? It's a good question. I would say today I'm probably a little different. So I, the only things I'm actively looking to acquire where I have a very active role are the businesses I'm fairly active in and right. I guess, here we go west, west florida fence so the commercial fencing business mm-hmm. one where i'm very active we're trying to grow through m a we source directly to owners which is something mm-hmm. i certainly don't advise searchers do on their first deal so that is one big focus area and otherwise i'm looking to invest across the spectrum of industries geographies size for the searchers that come through our boot camp so that's not changed. Otherwise, kind of agnostic. I, I guess the word opportunistic, although I kind of hate that word, it's whatever comes in, whatever makes sense. I don't necessarily have a focus for better or for worse, but it's pretty clear now just from seeing a bunch of things that patterns repeat and it's easier to s- sort of assess what industries we want to get into. Is there a red flag on the business side of it? Like somebody brings you a business and 
they're what's too small, what's too big. Like I'm mostly interested from not even just your investment thesis, but as you're training these guys, what do you tell them? Like, look for something between this size and this size, or are there traits that are big red flags to, I know the standard ones like customer concentration and all that stuff, but are there any ones out there? Cause you've got a lot more experience, uh, hands-on experience than some of these others. Are there things you have your guys keep an eye out for that just wouldn't be in the standard checklist of this is a good buy and this isn't about a good buy. So I kind of dodged your question. So I'll try to get more to the answer. When searchers come to me, usually they're geographically focused mm-hmm. and that's just the nature of self-funded searchers. They tend to be entrenched in a community and moving away from that city or state is a non-starter. So what that usually means is if you are forced to stay local, if you are too narrow in your criteria for industry and size, you're not going to have enough deal flow to find the business that you can actually buy. So right. we actually teach some in to be industry agnostic. The things I care a lot more about, because obviously we all want repeating or recurring revenue. That's not always practical. Right. So. I think it's a much more qualitative assessment around what is the risk of the business and what's the risk that the revenues and the profits deteriorate. I think I'm stealing this from somebody, but enduringly profitable that either came from the HBR guide or the Chenmark folks. I can't remember that phrase. Enduringly profitable is a really complicated analysis. It doesn't have to mean recurring revenue contractually Mm -hmm. recurring. It can mean a lot of things, but it might mean you're the only game in that town. Maybe that there's something unique about the business that makes it more likely to be successful over the long run. Because generally speaking, all of these businesses exist because they provide value. But if you're going to put debt on the business and you're going to have a new owner come in, there are things you need to make sure you understand so that you can survive long enough to see 20 years from now. And I think a big one is what does the owner do? How reliant upon the owner is that business? Is she responsible for a lot of the customers? Is there a designation or a license that's unique that's going to go away? Are there competitors that are popping up that are creating a more challenging dynamic for making money? Is it a cyclical business and you're looking at it during good times and just not looking at it during the hard times? So big time dodge of your question, but it's a, it depends. I think you got it there. I mean, in a roundabout way, but we got it. Like I said, I was kind of in your shoes at the beginning and I just chose a different path later on, but uh, I looked at fence companies and and to me, now I'm going to separate what, what I was looking at was residential fence. And the reason I went away from it is I like things that if I look at it, how do I add a reoccurring, like a subscription model, how do we add reoccurring? And I just didn't see it. And like, it was going to be a constant hustle. I think all business, all entrepreneurs, we should be in a constant hustle, but I don't think we should have to be in a constant hustle. There needs to be like some, some steady cash flow of some sort. That's just recurring business. And I think in the commercial space, do you do like fence rental and stuff for construction sites and stuff? Do you have a recurring element inside of your commercial side? Yeah, it's a good question. So in the fencing business, we're all exclusively commercial. And that means all of the properties we put fence on are commercial properties with the exception of multifamily housing, which Mm. other than the fact that people live there, it feels commercial and on track homes, 
we will do a lot of the exterior perimeter fencing of the community, not backyard, side yard fencing. And so we lose a lot of the repetitive work because it doesn't exist other than temp fence rental. Mm -hmm. We do a fair bit of it, but it is not nearly enough of our revenue bucket to lean on in any way. That's what I was. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. That's what I was going to ask is, can you get the recurring what model, the fence revenue, the construction site revenue, event, like where you're renting fence, can you get that high enough to at least cover the payroll in the event we have a bad economy, you've got it steady, you can hold people through a downspill. Is that possible yeah. in that industry? I mean, it is. Remember, we're pretty active in M&A, so no. we see a fair number of temp rental businesses that that's either all they do or it's their core business and Mm -hmm. it's really profitable. We'd love to be more in that business, but right now it would not cover our payroll. I think the thing we lean heavily on is in the commercial fencing world, it's a highly technical business. It's a technical sale. So we, and there are things about the best competitors in that space that create moats. You need Mm -hmm. to have a bonding capacity that not a lot of people can have. You Mm -hmm. need to have the expertise and the network to be able to get looks at the best jobs and to bid them accurately and to do them and to install them correctly and efficiently. Being good at all those things causes customers now to call us to give us the sole look at opportunities. And it's definitely not recurring revenue, but it is a high quality revenue business. Okay. I was just curious in there as like, is it possible to do that? And the answer is maybe, <laughs> right? It's maybe possible to do it. Probably going to take a lot of work to get it that high. So what would be a complimentary business to that? If you're building commercial fence, just doing fence rental, I would say there's a lot of little, like anytime you're doing the fence rental, it's events. So if I was to buy a fence rental company, I would buy a porta potty company. Because anywhere they're building something, right? I looked at one, you know, and I was teasing like almost bought a shitty business. It was a porta potty company. Unfortunately, the reason the guy we almost got to the LOI stage, we started doing a little pre due diligence and found out the reason he was trying to sell it to me was his business partner was embezzling and he was just trying to get me. He was trying to force his business partner to sell out at the same time, and the guy just wasn't having it. As a matter of fact, at some point, he this guy's an attorney too. He eventually just had to go over there and shut the thing down. And the guy, the guy had heard about it or something ahead of time. When he got there, they'd moved a bunch of the equipment off site. Like, and he didn't even know where all his equipment was. But uh, that was a profitable business. As horrible as it sounds, like picking up porta potties and pumping them out and putting them back, the math behind it looked really lucrative. Yeah. <laughs> so know? the dumpster business and the porta potty business go hand in hand, or yeah. I say can and can together. Yeah. Like, it, as I say, there, there should be your third one, right? If you were really like looking for synergy, rent fences, put porta potties up and do the roll offs, right? Yeah. So what we do is we try to be like a soup to nuts or cradle to grave provider to customers in the commercial fencing business. So a lot of times what we'll do is, so there's a core installation project. Mm -hmm. And that's what we do. We're not a supplier of fencing materials. We're just an installer. Well, you can do the front end, the temporary fence Mm -hmm. on the front end of a construction project. Mm -hmm. And then when it's done, put the permanent fence in. But then there are other ancillary businesses we're in, like fabricating gates. Gates are highly customized and hard to make and in short supply. Well, we make our own now. And that's a profitable business. And then the event rental business is a great fence business. Well, there's access controls, like the gate operators. As I say, access controls. I'm always looking at what other synergies could you buy to plug into that? Access controls and security, like the, the video 
video yeah. cameras on the gates and stuff. That would be the two sure. that stuck off my mind. If you're going to put a fence around something, yeah. you're probably interested in some respect for security. So maybe the cameras would be an auxiliary business you could bolt on. No doubt. Cool. So what do you got coming up? We're almost at the top of the hour. Let's talk about you. How do people reach out to you? What do you got coming up that people, if somebody wants to work with you, let's use the next few minutes to kind of solidify what you're up to, how people work with you and stuff. Yeah. Two core areas are if you're an entrepreneur trying to become an owner operator through acquisition, bootcamp is the best way. So we have a link on our website. It's pretty easy. We've got now nearly a hundred folks who have come through our boot camp. So I've got a lot of references. I've got a lot of good stats and it's become a pretty powerful program. So that would be first and foremost, I host office hours on Thursday afternoons just to be an open forum for entrepreneurs looking for, you know, some guidance and no strings attached there. We are trying to get boot camp to be available online. Live boot camp will always be kind of my baby. I love it. I'll never change mm-hmm. that. But it's not always possible for somebody that lives up where you live to fly all the way to Florida. So we're going to get some of the content put online and that way it's more accessible. And that's it. If you are in the fencing business and don't want to be anymore, or you want to partner with somebody, call me. Cool. All right. Big takeaways. I always ask this question to be 100% clear. It's what I use to make my shorts, <laughs> right? I don't think I've ever even said that on the show, but that's what we're using this for. So if somebody who has, would listen to the show and they can only walk away with one or two things, what would be the key takeaways you'd want a listener to, to get from you? Acquisition entrepreneurship is possible for anybody who's willing to do the hard ass work it takes to do it. And we can help. Awesome. That's awesome. That's a good one. And anything else? Is there anything that we should have talked about? I always do that. What did we do well? What could we have done better? And what did we miss? Let's just start with, did we miss anything here? Is there any area of this, what you do and what you're up to that we just didn't talk about today? Well, what we didn't talk about is that doing this ETA adventure is in all seriousness, a mentally taxing and stressful endeavor. Mm-hmm. There is, I guess it's now popular to talk about mental health and becoming more common. And yet mm-hmm. it's still not discussed enough how right. hard this is on people and their families. And that needs to be its own thing. Yeah, actually, there's probably a good chance out there. I mean, there's good opportunity out there for somebody to ETA support group. <laughs> like, let's talk about what you're dealing with. It's funny is I say that jokingly, but we do a meetup twice a month. It's pre-acquisition before most of these guys haven't acquired yet. A lot of people, guests from the show come on and they'll jump in and stuff. So we have some experts that come on too. But occasionally we get a guy on there like, hey, I bought this thing. And now we try to help them because all of us are of own business before, but you really know they need ongoing, like somebody to just chat with, somebody that's been there, done that. So if you're out there and you're an ETA expert, you bought a few businesses, but you used to be a therapist, there's a spot for you. (laughs) There is a spot for you. There's a peer group (laughs) popping up just for this very reason. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think we got everything here. You want to call that a show or you want to get something else you want to bring up? That's good, Ron. That was fun, man. That was fun. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show. Ask questions. 
uh, suggested guests, or even tell me about a business you have for sale, and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace, we have partnered with, has a proprietary database of 50,000-plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software-as-a-service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now